You're listening to Max Design Talk, the podcast for the Max community, where we talk about user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find show notes for everything we discuss in this episode at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. This episode was first published on the 25th of February, 2016. Coming up in this edition, an interview with Peter Law, a creative producer at Flying Object, and one of the speakers at our upcoming MEX16 event in London, where we talk about multi-sensory user experience design. We catch up on news from the MEX community, and we have a user story all about a flustered customer and contactless payment. Welcome to the show. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of MEX, and I've got a bit of a different format for you for this edition. My usual co-host, Alex Guest, unfortunately couldn't make it for this episode. So before I'm joined by my interview guest, Peter Law, later on in the show, I was going to run through a little bit of the news from the MEX community building on the segment we introduced during the last podcast, which seemed to go down well with everyone, to catch up on a bit of the happenings among those who've been involved with MEX over the years. Uh, And then we'll get into the in-depth interview with Peter, where we look at multi-sensory design. So what's been going on out there among MEX alumni? First up, I noticed that Lennart Anderson, uh, Director of Interaction Design at Veriday, who some of you will remember from our MEX 13 event, where he gave an extremely interesting presentation all about Veriday's unique approach to experience co-creation. Lennart and Veriday picked up the grand prize at the UX Awards in New York for a piece of work they did for a Swedish airport where they helped them to improve the efficiency and the design of a very aged-looking departure sequencing tool for airlines. might sound like a slightly dry topic to be working on, but like with so many user experience projects, the devil is in the detail, and I would urge you to have a look in the show notes and follow the link, because what they actually managed to achieve for this uh, airline was quite remarkable. And they go on to explain the kind of real world impact it's having about reducing CO2 emissions and improving efficiency and safety. Uh, So a well-deserved award by the sound of it and congratulations to them. In other news, we published User Experience Principles for Proximity, which is an essay and a set of insights and illustrations which builds on the work that came out of Alex's uh, MEX15 creative session, where he worked with uh, a team of MEX participants and some design students from Brunel University uh, to really try and understand what are the fundamental principles that drive those ways that people use technology to engage with the environment around them. Now, you might remember from the first episode of this podcast, that was our overall theme. So anyone who had an interest in that, um, I'd encourage you to go and check out uh, this written piece and, and the illustrations that accompany it, because it goes into quite a lot more detail uh, and came off the back of some really interesting stuff they did within that creative session where they went off on a field trip to the British Library to go and uh, explore this in the real world and then went through some iterative design sketching to come up with these different principles. Lastly, we are starting the rehearsals with the speakers for our MEX16 event, which is coming up next month in London on the 17th and 18th of March. And this, for me, is where these events all start to come together. And I've got to admit, it's one of my favorite parts of the process because you've been talking to these different speakers and facilitators over the course of pretty much a year as the kind of the... Uh, the seed of the idea uh, that they're going to talk about comes together and you've been exchanging ideas and feedback about it. Uh, and then you start to see the thing clarified and, and, and becoming real. 
Uh, and as we do these rehearsals, which is a way for us to understand how it's going to fit into the overall program, but also uh, to provide some feedback to each of the speakers and help them understand how they can really get the most out of the session for themselves and for the other participants within it. Uh, it's just amazing to see that all coming together and to start to understand what that program is going to look like for this our, our 16th MEX event now. Um, so it's been uh, a fascinating time to see that happening. I'm looking forward to catching up with the rest of the speakers over the next week or so as we go through those rehearsals. Uh, and I've got to say, it is shaping up to be uh, a really interesting program, some insightful talks some great creative challenges. Um, so if you're interested in coming along to that, there's still time to get tickets and uh, you can find the link to the website for the MEX event in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com. So up next is my interview with Peter Law. Now, some of you, I think, will know him from the previous sessions that he's been involved with at the MEX events over the years, always around this notion of multi-sensory user experiences. And he's worked, for instance, with some of our other facilitators like Lindsey Green and Alison Webb, who specialize in helping uh, companies and, and organizations within the uh, museums and, and cultural sector to understand the role of, of technology and digital experience design in their world. He's worked with them previously on some really uh, unusual and, and challenging workshops that we've done. Um, to give you an idea, you, know, you would walk into the room where these guys were working with a team of people at MEX and discover that everyone in there had been blindfolded uh, and was pairing up and leading each other around the room to try and get a, a real sense of what happens when you deprive people of one sense, um, but you heighten their awareness of another. Uh, and it's led to some really interesting results over the years. So I was keen to catch up with Peter and hear a bit more about what he's been working on, not least because he will also be a speaker at MEX in London, the MEX 16 event in London next month. Uh, he's been working with an agency called Flying Object recently, uh, and the interview is quite wide ranging. We talk about some of the stuff he's been doing with Flying Object, including a, a multi-sensory art installation they did at the Tate Britain Gallery in London. But we get onto everything from haptics to 3D audio, also some of the issues around how you teach people these multi-sensory design skills, how you push students to look beyond visual design within their, their design training, uh, and even some slightly more esoteric things like what you can learn by walking across a meadow with your eyes closed. So here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. How are you doing? Hello, good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Uh, I was thinking back before we got started with this and trying to recall how it was we actually came across each other, which I guess was probably around the work that you were doing at the time on an app called Papa Sangre, which really caught my attention uh, and I think the attention of a lot of people out there interested in this area of non-visual design and how you can do interesting things with these smart devices which tap into other senses. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with it, perhaps you could just explain what Papa Sangre was and why it was so significant in that regard. Yeah, of course. Um, so I was on a team really talented team of people who were making Papa Sangre, which was a game for iPhones with no visuals, only audio. Um, the audio was binaural, which is a way of recording and producing sound that makes it feel particularly real. So people often call it 3D audio. Um, so this game, if you imagine, you're sitting with your iPhone we'd created a 3D sound environment that you could move around by tapping the screen of your phone. Um, and you knew you were moving through this environment because you could hear it moving around you. Um, you could hear yourself moving through it. There's obviously nothing to see and you are just standing or sitting in the same place. Um, but what we discovered 
was that this effect was really quite powerful and eerie of being in a in a place that you could only hear. And I think it was even powerful enough once you've been playing for a little while that you could open your eyes, know that you weren't moving around, but at the same time feel like you were making progress through a dungeon that we'd created. Um, and the game was a sort of a dungeon, escape the monsters, collect the, collect the goals uh, type game. And where did the original inspiration come for that? Um, I think that came from a conversation between Paul Bennon at something else, which was the company that made it, and Tassos Stevens, uh, who has a theatre company called Coney. Um, I think they were talking about games for uh, where blind users and sighted users could be on a level playing field. Um, but certainly I and both of them had been in a world of creating sort of live games sort of things like parlor games like running around games which may or may not use technology and uh we're all about using your body and all of your senses um as well as sitting and playing with things that are on screens um and that kind of shaded a lot of work that tassos was doing into interactive theater work and so creating an environment that used a particular sense, just your ears and also your imagination on a, um, iPhone seems to be a really exciting next step. So I came in once the project was already running. Um, I should say also those guys and I in my past have been making radio programs as well. It was a sort of collision of all sorts of interesting worlds. That was, I think, one of the things which really caught my attention with it when I first experienced it, uh, was how it seemed to have come from this rather different view of what user experience could be at the time. And I think it's probably still true to say these days, when people talk about user experience, the mind straight away, for most people, goes to the visual elements. But of course, it can be so much more than that, as things like Papa Sangre proved, where you could have this very powerful, emotive experience, really without any visuals at all, all done through sound. But I'm curious as to what got you interested in that area in the first place. You say you were involved with radio and, and things around interactive theatre, but what did that sort of path look like for you as you came up through your education and then ended up getting interested in that area? What sort of route did you take to, to end up in that kind of role? Well, yeah, it started uh, earlier than that, actually. In the mid-90s, um, I'd done a psychology degree uh, at Edinburgh with um, some AI, artificial intelligence components and robotics um, and then I'd gone on to Sussex to do a master's called Evolutionary and Adaptive Systems at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, and had got in both, had got really interested in a thread of psychology and brain sciences and philosophy um, called embodied cognition, which I think you were chatting to one of your other guests about a couple yes, of weeks Patrizia ago. Yes, Patrizia Bertini, uh, who was one of the facilitators at our last MEX event, actually. And she was uh, ah, using lovely. this Lego serious play facilitation technique, which is very much driven by that principle of embodied cognition, that you need to be doing something physically um, yep. to access certain areas of the mind and certain ways of thinking. Uh, so yeah, we had a very interesting conversation around that, actually in the first episode of this this podcast. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um and actually, the Lego Mindstorms was something that I had one of those then, I think one of the first or second waves of it. Um, I think the approach that I took was to it was perhaps the other way around, which was trying to understand how, how this cognition thinking thing works. What was it made up of when you were behaving and trying to do things or trying to understand as a psychologist what was going on, what was involved? And there were lots of models of thinking in the mind which seems to stem from people sitting at screens or 
uh, in the library, immobile, thinking about stuff, cogitating, being logical. But actually, what these this embodied cognition strand was all about was how how is your body involved? How are your, all of your senses sort of brought together to create a sense of the world that you're in? Um, and psycho- like what happens if, if that sort of coordination starts to work poorly or, um, or if you perturb it a little bit? So I was quite interested in things like well, what happens if you're blindfolded for a long time? How does that change your sense of where you are and how you're moving around? Um, and as, as an ardent young student, I used to get my friend to sort of uh, go on long walks around Edinburgh with me. And we'd take turns closing our eyes and describing where we were. And I think what happened is that your sense of uh, distance travels kind of telescopes. Um, so you think you've gone a lot further than you actually have. I think I used to go, I used to sort of walk across the meadows with my eyes closed sometimes and about halfway across, you'd start to feel like you're definitely at the other side and um, you're just about to walk into a tree or something or a wall at the other side. So all of these thoughts were kind of bubbling around my mind. Um, There was a really interesting paper that I read right at the end of my undergraduate by um, Kevin O'Regan and Alvar Noe called, um, I think, A Sensory Motor Introduction to Perception. And it was all about how your sense of your sense of objects in the world emerged from um, all sorts of different perceptions of them being coordinated at about the same time. Um, so you you know you touch a cup in front of you, and the feeling of pushback on your finger, the visual sense of um, perception of connection, and the gap between your finger and the cup closing to nothing and also probably um the sound of the your finger tapping on the cup all happen at the same time and that helps because those things tend to continue to be coordinated you have a sense that there is a thing out there um and it persists i think that's why perhaps sangre worked quite nicely um after a while you could move around this audio environment and it had some sort of persistence and although audio environment wasn't coordinated with what you could see or your sense of your body moving um that persistence was robust enough to give you a sense of a world that you're in so playing around with these kind of coordinations and persistences and interactions between the senses was something that was on my mind but in a way it seems like you're describing what you could broadly call the art of illusion, which you see also in visual elements of user experience as well, that uh, you're doing things to create something greater than the sum of its parts or to create a sense of things that aren't really there, um, but doing it very much tapping into those senses which are perhaps under-addressed within digital generally around touch and around hearing where things are so much concentrated Uh, on the visual I mean when you think about what's possible with that sort of art of illusion and those additional senses how far do you think we can go with that compared to where we are today currently if you think about the average user's engagement with the digital devices in their life be they their smartphones or their laptops or all of these other digital things which are coming into our lives how much more scope do you think is there to make those experiences that much more emotionally resonant with people if we are able to tap into these senses? I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of scope. I think you you could perhaps think about it in two ways. One is uh, how we normally do things when we're not thinking hard and we're not having peak experiences. We're just getting about going through our day to day. Um, there's quite a lot of illusion and theater and omission and gap filling and imagination in that anyway. So for example, I guess every time you listen to an MP3, because of how compression works, a lot of that sound has been removed and you're filling in um, psychoacoustically, you're filling in the gaps. 
um, or you have a sort of a working model about how well-designed tools or other people's minds work and you work on the basis of those assumptions. And I think like normal functioning sort of changes. We were chatting a little bit earlier about um, before, before we started recording about what being phoned by someone means and differently um, what it's like to chat with and be with someone on Skype. Right? Are they there? What, what does it mean? Are they still around? Are they going to be in the room? Um, so I think those kind of modes of being and the illusions that you're used to and how you interpret situations will just change. We didn't do the Skype thing five, ten years ago quite as much as we do now. Uh, we did the telephone thing a lot more and it melts, meant something kind of different. But I think the really interesting opportunity is in forging new schemes or new modes or creating sort of peak experience modes with people. So you really challenge what they expect of a situation, which senses are going to be involved, what they might be expected to do or what the affordances are. Um, I mean, maybe I could talk a little bit about the Tetsensorium here because I think that that's quite a good example of that. Yeah, let's set a little bit of background with that because mm, this I know yeah. is something which uh, you and your colleague Tom are going to um, use as a central focus for your session at the MEX 16 event in London. Um, but for people who are listening who perhaps aren't as familiar with it as, as I've become, perhaps you could just explain a little bit about what happened at the Tate Sensorium and uh, how it, it addresses these areas of multisensory experiences. Yeah, of course. Uh, so the Tate Sensorium was a um, display that I and my colleagues at an agency, a creative studio I currently work at called Flying Object Created, um, at Tate Britain last summer. Um, it ran for four weeks, six weeks in the end. And um, and which part of the Tate Britain gallery was this in? So we were given a room, um, I think just outside the 1920s gallery, if that means anything to anybody listening. Um, okay. we were given I mean, it's a an room. amazing building and space for those who aren't familiar with it and perhaps who are coming into to London for the MEX event next month, well worth making some time to go and visit Tate Britain. Oh, you know, yeah, one of goodness. the really interesting galleries to go and explore. I think it's probably my favourite gallery in London. Um, it's got the UK's collection of British art. Uh, it's slightly complicated by its more sort of groovy um, uh, sibling Tate Modern down the road. And Tate Britain do have a sort of a, a problem, which is that they're regarded as being um, a little bit more conservative than Tate Modern. Um, and do you think that was one of the motivations for commissioning this project with you guys? Yeah, I think they're interested in playing around with with new things and exploring, um, or specifically in this case, what's what you could do with technology and um new ideas in that world we the commission was from something they're running again actually called the ik prize um the brief is the design brief is to um use technology to find new ways for people to engage with tate's collections of british art um Currently, they're running one looking at artificial intelligence specifically. But ours, um, it was quite open. And so we came to them with this idea that what if you engaged other people's other non-visual senses to give them jumping off points to change, sort of deepen how they look at a painting and perhaps discover new things to see in it or think about it. So how did you feel putting together the pitch for that? Because Tate is a significant brand. You know, it's a respected name within the, the field of art. And you've got this very distinctive 
building there and you have the possibility of being given a room. I mean, how do you get your mind around putting together a pitch in response to a brief like that? I mean, is there <laughs> yeah. a, is there a sense of the sort of, you know, history and, and tradition and um, equity around that, that name and that brand, which you have to be aware of going into a process like that? Oh yeah, goodness, completely. Um, but that's, I mean, that was, that was partly what was exciting about it. I think, um, they, they were pretty understanding and I think they were looking for something radical and new. Um, but we were all pretty determined as well that we would do something true to the works of art they have there. Um, and so, yeah, I guess because also what we were trying to do, there's people have been working on similar sort of sensory gallery um, gallery displays before we were trying to do something with multi-sensory installation. We were kind of pathfinding when we went in there as well. But they, I think they, they made it okay to be bold. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to the sensorium myself while it was on. So perhaps you could just explain to people who weren't able to see it what they would have actually experienced when they walked in for the first time. Yeah, of course. So they would have got their ticket. Um, They'd go go and queue up in the 1920s gallery outside our room. Um, When they went into the room, they'd have a timed slot. They would be given a set of headphones. But already they'd realise that the atmosphere is very different to the rest of the gallery. Um, So the lights were low. There was a a sort of a theme, audio theme, playing in the background. Um, And actually, before I describe exactly what it was, this relates to a little bit of the thinking about what we were making. So galleries are very reasonably quite sensorially controlled environments. They prioritise looking often um, because touching is often impossible because objects are quite fragile or valuable um, and uh, they discourage eating and there's often sort of not very much to smell or the smell environment is quite sort of stable. Um, but so what we were thinking is, well, what if you played around with that and while being true to the paintings and trying to keep people's attention focused on them, what if you played with your people's other senses while they were looking in order to nudge them, their attention to different bits of the painting or different ways of interpreting the painting or even just trying to make them aware of sort of some of the things that are in there. Paintings really sort of dense, complicated objects, and they're worth looking at for a long time. So So that was the focal point from the the gallery's perspective, though, is they had chosen, or you had chosen with them, a a number of paintings to be, if you like, the centrepiece of the the, the displays. Yes, so we had four 20th century abstracts, uh, or semi-abstract paintings. Um, Yes, so you'd, you'd... go into this dark room you wouldn't know it but it's about 10 meters by 10 meters um we had a narrator who introduced you to the sensorium and sort of managed your expectations a little bit about what was going to happen and then explained that it was up to you to find your own interpretations of the paintings and what was going to happen and that we would steer you through this experience was that a live narration or was that something you'd pre-recorded? Pre-recorded. Um, and so that would come in through the headphones that you put on. We'd also invite everyone to wear some wristbands which measured some of their biodata, particularly skin conductance response, which galvanic skin response, which is the lie detector test. Um, the idea that you were given at the beginning is that that will measure your body's response to what's going to happen and it would just give you another way of looking back on what had happened while you're in the room um but i'll explain a little bit more about that at the end so we worked quite hard to make this room feel like another world but a sort of a coherent world for it to have a bit of a narrative um we worked with a theater maker called annette mees um 
who helped to structure it. I mean, even explicitly to be a bit like a five-act play, um, explicitly for us as designers, but not for people who arrived. So once they'd had this little introduction, they moved on to the first painting, and the room was divided up into sort of four different booths. But actually, we used we focused the lighting and people's attention on one painting, one at a time. So you weren't really particularly aware of anything else in the room. So the first painting was Richard Hamilton, a mid-60s interior. It's called Interior 2. And we um, worked with a scent designer to create three different scents that you could smell. They were sort of gently pumped with a process of dry diffusion into the little area in front of the painting. While you were listening to a soundtrack um, uh, delivered by a quadraphonic speaker setup. So you're in this kind of little area looking at the painting, carefully lit. You could smell um, some of the things that were in the painting. So there is a uh, image of a woman. You could smell her hairspray. We used the 1950s formula um, perfume. Um, we, you could also smell, we found the 1960s um, formula for Pledge, the furniture polish. So that sort of evoked the kind of Scandinavian interior that's in the painting. And then a little bit more meta, there was also the smell of glue. It's a collage work. Um, and the audio, again, picked out some of the objects that are in the painting. So the footsteps of um, the woman on the parquet floorboard, um, some of the atmos that was in the room, and we the sound was created so that it um, had the sort of reverb, reverb and qualities that you'd expect in that sort of interior. What what people reported was with that one that it sort of made the sense of the space in the painting. They became much more aware that it was a real space being depicted. Um, and it felt like it sort of bled out of the painting towards them. And also the sense, I think, helped them focus in on things like uh, it being a person in the painting and what a person meant to them rather than it just being a visual object they looked at, they were like, oh, that's a person. Okay, I get it. And it gave them new sort of narratives to have in their mind when they're looking at the painting, new so different ways to look at dig it. dig into some of the, the construction of that experience, because mm. this is what's really striking me as you're describing that, is if you think about all of those different dimensions that you're talking about, from the moment that people were arriving in the gallery and you were playing with the light levels and with the kind of audio they're hearing and then you're bringing in the smell and then you're playing with the timing as well and also with the sort of expectations that they have about it because they know that there's going to be a degree of measurement of what their experience is. Now those are things which I suppose when you're thinking about digital experience design as it's commonly understood um, you might touch on uh, for some of them but a lot of those are things which I think would be entirely new to most people who are accustomed to working in digital design for you as a group of people as the team bringing this together mm. how do you start to plan a, a multi-dimensional experience like that I mean are there tools that you can use to do this are you having to use your own sort of bespoke tooling in terms of how you actually lay out an experience like that how you test it how you iterate it in the way that you know you would do with say I guess what is a very um, established tooling chain something like visual design what kind of methods can you use to actually start to, to lay out the steps of that experience that you're going to deliver to people? I think in some, it was a design process. So I suppose one that would be familiar uh, in that it was iterative. And we tried, we tried to test what we were making as quickly as possible, quickly as possible. Um, so with my background in making live games, um, the, the sort of really useful mantra when you're making these kind of experiences 
of which there is no previous example that seems relevant is you make something and you try it out on real people as quickly as possible. So we started off by um, the whole lot of us roaming around the gallery, looking at paintings, um, trying out scents in front of them. Um, the sound designer who we worked with, Nick, who I'd worked with on Pap Sangre before, Nick Ryan, who's really amazing, um, very quickly sort of sketched out some sounds that he thought for the different paintings that we'd selected that he thought seemed appropriate or evocative um and also uh we worked with a team of experts i think quite quickly we realized that we were going to need some specialist skills on this and um some of these experts focused to tell us what the palette what the opportunities were was massively important and to help us sort of diagnose what to do when something seemed to work or didn't seem to work um and given yeah, your so, background in previous projects mm, did you find it a challenge to be able i suppose to engage using the kind of vocabulary that those experts have within their field i mean how uh, how much of a challenge was it for you to get up to speed with that and be able to sort of start to weave together all of those those elements as someone you know overseeing the overall experience um i think i was for me the thing that would bind it all together would be the user's experience so we did quite a lot of chatting about you know guidelines and what what we were designing and the kind of experience we wanted to make for people. But ultimately when you put subjects into your sort of test setup and say, well, you know, what was that like? Um, and find out what they actually experienced. That's normally the thing that grounds it. Um, the thing that was quite tricky and quite interesting was that I think a key part of this experience, which was standing in a gallery in front of these brilliant paintings, doing something quite naughty, like eating a chocolate or smelling a scent, was actually quite powerful in and of itself. And we didn't have that element until really quite late in the day. So we were sort of pathfinding, like sketching, trying things out, trying things out in the gallery, trying things out with... Um, printouts or projections um uh back in the studio or back in a rehearsal room um we did a lot of going into the gallery at night and sort of taping things out on the floor taping out the paintings on the wall and trying to mock up the environment as closely as possible um that's interesting that sense of the forbidden which you hint at there mm. and the notion that galleries can be these quite formulaic rule-bound places but the people's perceptions i suppose you can start to play with those a little bit if you give them license to do something a little bit different in some way shape or form do you think that then spills over into how they experience the rest of it as you say the fact that you allow them to eat in a place where they wouldn't normally be allowed to eat or they smell something they wouldn't normally expect it to smell does that then start to uh, influence the, the rest of their gallery experience as it were yeah no completely um i mean we we were quite explicit when we were designing it about trying to give them space to have their own experiences and a bit of space to explore we did a lot of talking about you know should we encourage them to talk to each other while they're in the gallery in our room or not should we allow them to move on from paintings at their own pace or not in the end we went with something quite controlled um but within that enough space for them to have their own way of tackling each painting you know did they move around and smell all the smells or did they stand in one place and just have a look um but then yeah we wanted that that kind of balance i guess of rules and having a reasonable expectation about what's going to happen and understanding what's going on balanced with um, autonomy and feeling like you've got your own head um, was really quite important. But we wanted a little bit of 
something like that to come out into the gallery. So one of the things that we gave them at the end of the experience, once they looked at four of these paintings, was a printout of their um, galvanic skin response throughout the experience, um, measured by the wristband that we'd given them. And then from that, but fill in a questionnaire as well. And the data from the questionnaire, we created a bespoke tour of the rest of the gallery um, with other paintings we thought they might like. So if they responded really strongly to the um, smell experiences, um, then we'd give them more paintings on this bespoke tour that we thought um, seemed a bit smelly. Um, and we were kind of a little bit sort of open on seeming a bit smelly, what that meant. But people really seemed to get it. They were like, okay, yeah. I used to tell people that it was the kind of paintings where you might want to consider your nose when you're standing in front of them. What might, what does my nose tell me while I'm looking at this painting? Um, so yes, yeah, so we wanted something, something of the uh, anarchy and the new way of thinking sensorially in this room to be an idea that you could use when you're in the rest of the gallery, even though obviously there are no smells in front of the paintings outside of our room, you you could just become aware of it. So that's you could interesting because sort of, in a way you're almost connecting the dots uh, one stage further on. You know, if you think about this in the context of experience design, particularly how it relates, I suppose, to what's possible within the digital environment, even in areas where people are starting to experiment with tapping into different senses. Thus far, I think it has, most of the examples have tended to be around a kind of consumption experience and that you can create something for users to tap into, to experience, but there's not really much that they can do to input back into that and, and take further on from it but from what you're describing it it sounds like you were able to take some of those measurements and and give people if you like that ability to do something useful with that multi-sensory experience you'd given them and, and to then take that on and, and apply it to, to other things which perhaps is the next step with these uh, these kind of experiences is giving people the ability to to input back into them as it were within that same multi-sensory way completely i um i mean that feels like one of the big opportunities your phone is uh able to produce limited or no scent and taste uh, experiences for you and there's a sort of a there's a growing palette of different haptic things it can do for you but you have a body which is tasting things and smelling things and touching things all the time so if when you're making experience for a phone or some other context if you can get people to direct their attention to what's going on around them and to use their imagination to think about you know smell think about touch um then you can create these multi-sensory experiences i think sort of just using the resources that people already have um I say that easily, but I think it's quite tricky to get people into a state where they feel able to do that. Like we sent people through a sort of 20 minute boot camp in uh, boot camp on consulting your body when you're standing in front of a painting. Um, I do believe, though, that you can make, and I think this is one of the opportunities that for us that we're interested in, how do you, how do you make these experiences? really quickly and in much less controlled environments so how do you get someone in one of these kind of like embodied sensory aware states um within 15 seconds or something or like three seconds so you can do it in a retail environment um think things like headphones are super useful um because they sort of throw you into yourself and immerse you quite quickly um we were working with some really incredible directional speakers which create a quite sort of eerie effect of sound being just around you and then nowhere else as soon as you move out of the pool of sound um and things like taste is very direct and gets to you um smell is very good at evoking memories um, 
so yeah there, there are all sorts of ways of doing it but i think one of the big opportunities is just getting people to use their imaginations and focus on the sensory stuff that's already coming in so now that you've had the experience of doing this in this admittedly very bespoke environment at somewhere like the Tate where you had the resources you had people's guarantee of attention to a degree um, now that you've seen the results from something like that and you're starting to think about how this can be applied in those kind of quicker more mainstream scaled up if you like um, deployments of this experience and thinking also about the sort of capabilities that are available to you through people's digital devices currently do you have a a sense do you have a a wish list almost of what you'd like to see falling into place to be able to make it possible that these experiences could scale out of a bespoke gallery environment and start to be something that people can download and run on their own phones wherever they happen to be or you know do at a, a much more mass scale around the world without needing it to be so carefully curated for them I think I think my top of my wish list is development in people's expectations um, about what about the sensory parts of an experience. Because um, I think so say scent scent technology, um, the new scent stuff that's available. There's not a lot of it yet. I think there are some interesting things like the Senti, which is a little device that plugs into your phone and will um, pump out scent um, when events happen on your phone. Um, but at the moment, that the different scents that can come out of that are reasonably limited. Um, so you need, I think, the version I used, a different Senti block for each different scent um but your imagination is boundless um and there are all sorts of things to smell and touch and so on around you um you know and you you you're you're hearing your context and you're smelling your context all the time you just have to become a little bit more aware of it um and i think that being able to play with that and people's expectations generally changing that interesting things are going to happen in that domain. That's what's really helpful. So, you know, you walk into a shop and you're like, oh, I wonder if there's anything fun to smell in here. Um, that would make our job, uh, would open up all sorts of opportunities for us rather than specifically new technology. That's an interesting way of thinking about it i mean as you describe that it it strikes me that in a way what we're almost talking about here is using um, the digital element of this perhaps as a sort of set of signposts to try and encourage you to go and do the additional things with your body which perhaps aren't going to be viable for some time to come or maybe will never be viable with mainstream digital devices around being able to give you complex sense or being able to give you really complex um touch sensations for instance while yeah. those things uh, are there in the labs we may never see those in a mainstream way but as you say everyone is equipped with a body that can do all of those things for them so we perhaps need to think about these digital devices as being if you like the conduit to getting people to go and do that and that we can use the capabilities which are within mainstream devices to, to prompt them to go and explore those things and it reminds me a little bit about um one of the speakers that we had at MEX in the past, a chap called Jim Cosum, who was involved with a project in Eastern Europe where they were trying to help children that were in a country that had um, war crimes committed to understand more about the history of those and to, to learn from them. And obviously it was a very sensitive project um, and they were trying to use technology in some way to help people get that deeper understanding, that deeper connection with it. And they actually ended up using it in a very simple way in the end, which was simply to get people to go 
to a place which was related to that history and then to dial into something where they could hear an audio narration. But actually the majority of the experience for those people was coming from the environment that they were physically in. And the digital element of it was simply a way of getting them into that environment and giving them a series of sort of prompts and steps to get them to experience things which you could never deliver through the devices themselves. The devices could only be the connector, as it were. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting. It it, it reminds me of one of the revelations that psychologists were sort of thinking about um, in the mid-90s when I was doing my undergraduate degree um there were when people trying to model what was going on in the mind um there there was a big school that was trying to understand what what we how we constructed a model of the world around us in our brains and if you were going to build an artificial intelligence what would it need to model about the room it was in and there was a newer school that i thought was really interesting which was part of this sort of embodiment movement. And they said, well, no, let the world be its own model. Um, you know, you don't need to look at a scene and remember and understand exactly what's in there because that world persists. So all your eyes really need to do is figure out where the important bits of that world are and return to them. And we built a world which directs our attention to important things like light switches, plug holes, you know, uh, headlines on newspapers. And um, I think sometimes letting the world be its own model is, is a useful principle when you're designing. Just become, use the, the computer and the digital device as a sort of a nudger and uh, inspire and uh, control center and set up the contexts where you can have interesting or heightened or um, useful experiences. So that diverse educational background that you had has, has clearly informed a lot of the thinking that mm. you have about these projects like the Tate Sensorium and, and some of these new things that you're experimenting with with experience design. What do you think about the sort of route that people should be looking to take to get into this area? If they're at that stage in their career where they're thinking about how they might direct their studies at undergraduate or go on to do a, a master's, do you have any sense now, having had both that educational experience and now the practical career experience of doing it in the field, as to um, what the the best combo is as it were if you're looking to make yourself more of a, a multi-sensory multi-dimensional designer than the uh, the traditional sort of visual route which which most people still go down um yeah it's interesting i mean i i cursed my choices doing uh to for doing these things for so long because i took a sort of a broad winding approach through my career and did quite a lot of different things. I followed, I followed what I was interested in really. Um, and, and I guess if you're, if you're prepared to do that and that's what you want to do, um, there, there are costs to it. Um, but there are amazing benefits. So quite often these things that seemed interesting, which I then thought, why did I spend two years doing that? When all my friends are, you know, doing this, that, and the other. And, uh, have a sort of a sleeker career direction. Why did I do that? Quite often I would get accrue some benefit from it later on. Um, I think generally like the interest, the interesting stuff, like all this embodiment stuff, if you're thinking about it and you're passionate about it and there'll be modern equivalents of that, then there are probably other people a bit like you or in whom you'd be interested thinking about the same things. And there may not be obvious, obvious employers um, that will take advantage of that interest. Um, so you also have to have a practical plan. Um, so for example, I'm trying to work with junior designers at the moment, and sometimes we just want the craft skills, um, the common craft skills like ability to visualize things for us and work with Photoshop and Illustrator fluently. Um, 
and all of that other interesting stuff and insight it comes a little bit later in their career or is a background for them. But I think, you know, if, if you like this sort of stuff and you're seeking out the interesting stuff, then the world of design seems to have increasingly more space for people who are going off the beaten track a bit, but being trying to be principled about it. I think that's half the point with this really is that um, it, it does need to be that kind of slightly generalist approach to things perhaps sometimes not something that you can put your finger on and immediately say that is going to map directly to this job function in the future yeah as you say there's always going to be a need for for those kind of core skills but certainly among the university students that we work with within the mex initiative um almost always it's those who are willing either in their spare time um, or through the kind of choices that they make to look a little bit beyond that mainstream while still equipping themselves with those those kind of core craft skills uh, who are the ones who end up going on to do the most interesting work so i think yeah. it, it does it favors that that generalist approach you know there's a a real value in the sort of polymath knowledge that um, people can bring to these things by exploring those those wider interests um but, I mean, it's been really interesting to explore some of this with you and hopefully give people a sense of, of what becomes possible uh, when you do look a little bit off the, the beaten track and you start to think about those additional dimensions. Uh, I know this is going to be something which you and your colleague Tom from uh, Flying Object are going to be helping people to experience for themselves at our MEX event, the MEX 16 event in London. Um I don't want you to give away all of the the secret source of what you're planning, of course, but perhaps you could just give people a bit of a a hint as to what they might expect. I seem to remember from one of your last sessions that you were involved in at MEX, we had people being led blindfold around the building and doing all kinds of interesting things. So maybe you could uh, give people a a bit of a taster of what they might uh, experience this time around. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like, I mean, I like a bit of doing and I like a bit of uh, theatre. Oh goodness, when we were figuring out how to use the wristbands in the sensorium, I sort of I forced all my colleagues to wear the wristband um, when we were going round doing test versions of the experience because you need to wear the wristband to see what it feels like to wear this expensive bit of technology on your wrist. Um, so we're going to be doing some practical, some short, fun, practical tasks to try and get people to be aware of what their senses are doing and what what feels normal and what feels not normal and where that takes you then i think we're going to be doing we're going to be doing a little bit of talking about the the kinds of things i've been chatting about here then i think we're going to give you a sense of practical workflow what do you do with those insights how can you start to bind them into something that you can design with how can you marshal them? And then I think we'll probably start to sketch out some of the different applications that we see and some of the technologies that are available that you sort of might move into position. That um, sounds like a lot to look forward to. And yes. it's been a pleasure catching up on this today, Pete. I'm thoroughly looking forward to seeing what uh, you guys get up to at the MEX event next month. Lovely, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, very grateful that you guys are able to come along and do it. So thanks for taking the time today. And, Fantastic, um, thank you. We will look forward to catching up again next month. Brilliant, yes. Similarly, we're excited about it. this episode with a user story, part of an ongoing series at mobileuserexperience.com, where we look at the weird and fascinating ways in which people use technology in the real world. This time, we're in a rural backwater, where we're seeing how people are reacting to contactless payment, and how some of our often illogical attitudes to finance manifest in our user behavior with digital experiences. I'm 
standing in line at the local store the other day, and the chap in front of me goes forward and puts his items through the checkout. And the lady at the till looks a bit surprised when he takes out his credit card and goes to slide it into the slot of the credit card machine. Oh, she says to him, you're going to do it like that? And he looks a little bit flustered, like he doesn't quite know what she's she's trying to suggest. And she says, oh, it's just that I'm used to people doing it with the tap now. The tap, she called it. And she was referring, of course, to contactless payments. Now, let me give you a bit of background here. This is the local shop in my village. It's a rural place, a bit out of the way. And they only actually got the contactless terminals a few months ago. And I can remember the very same lady behind the checkout not being wildly happy about this new technology which had invaded her customary way of doing things. And yet here we are, just a few months later, and she, by her own admission, is now so used to the notion that people are doing things with the tap that she is surprised when someone tries to put their credit card into the slot and actually has to make a few adjustments on the touchscreen of the till in front of her to enable him to pay using the sliding method rather than the tap method. It's interesting because when I came into the store that day, just to give you a bit of context here, the only other car on the road outside was an old pickup truck, a beaten up old pickup truck with a bit of rust on it. And the back was full of dead birds because it's game season. That gives you an idea of the kind of part of the world we're talking about here. This isn't a thriving urban center. This is a little rural village in a bit of a backwater. And yet we're starting to see these kind of behaviors around new ways of paying for things coming in. The other thing I noticed going into the store is that there's now an Apple Pay logo very prominently displayed on the door, despite the fact it's only been a few months since Apple Pay actually rolled out in the UK. And again, at the checkout, the Apple Pay logo is there front and center, right next to these contactless payment terminals. A little bit further down the street, there's a new coffee shop that's opened up. And it's a very different scene in there. You have a MacBook sitting on a nice varnished wooden counter where people queue to get their fancy espressos and cappuccinos and little pastries. And it's playing a playlist from Spotify. Now, they don't have any kind of traditional payment terminal in there whatsoever. Instead, they've got one of those little credit card readers hooked up to an iPad behind the counter. And when one of the people who's sitting there who is pretty clearly there as a tourist, when you've been living in this part of the world for a while, you get to recognize who are the locals and who are the tourists. And she very much fell into the the latter category. She goes up to pay for a couple of coffees and a, a pastry and she hands her card over and the guy behind the counter says, oh, do you mind if I use the contactless and he's sort of holding the card kind of poised just above the reader as if to suggest that he's waiting for her permission before he would do that and it's a gesture I've noticed people doing anywhere they've got contactless terminals the card kind of gets held at this slight angle above the reader just waiting there for the customer to okay it and of course she says that's fine in fact she said to him, oh yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's better that way. It doesn't feel like I'm spending anything when you do it that way. Which really gave me pause for thought. Of course, the financial transaction is exactly the same, but it just goes to show that often these matters of payment, particularly when you're talking about introducing new ways of making payment, are really not governed by the things that you would expect we hear lots of talk within the industry about security, authentication, all of those very necessary things which need to happen in the background. But when it comes to the consumer experience, the evidence that I'm seeing on the street is that it's driven much more by illogical, emotional factors. And in fact, when you start to dig down into most people's financial behaviors, very few of them are grounded in logic. They are driven 
much more instinctively, much more emotionally than most people are even willing to admit. And I think we're going to see a similar thing playing out around new ways of paying, be it Android Pay, be it Apple's Pay. All of these things are going to have to find ways of integrating with those unexpected and illogical attitudes that most people have to finances on both sides of the counter, be it the people who are doing the serving and the way they introduce these transactions and the way they respond to customers when they come in, or be it the customers themselves and the sort of expectations that they have. That's it for this edition. Don't forget you can find show notes for everything that we talk about in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe by searching for Mech's Design Talk in your favorite podcast player. And please also help others to find it. The best way you can do that is by going to iTunes and giving us a five-star rating uh, and adding your review of the podcast, which helps others to discover it by bumping us up the podcast charts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.